Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Glenn Weil. In his day job, Glenn is the Octopest at Microsoft, where he advises Microsoft senior leaders, and I'll leave him to explain that acronym. He's also the author of a book called Radical Markets, which imagines how market-like mechanisms can be extended to address pressing problems which are typically addressed in outdated or more ad hoc ways. For instance, more expressive ways of voting, more efficient ways of taxing and changing ownership or property, and fairer ways to share in the gains from migration. Glenn is also the founder of Radical Exchange, which is a global movement for next-generation political economies. We began by talking about some of the suggestions from Radical Markets, especially quadratic voting and funding, which I tried to explain later. One thing that came through for me was, I guess, a more nuanced picture of what's important about democracy. I find that as a word, it can be taken to mean any number of things, um, but I think I got a clearer sense of which precise aspects of democracy are most underrated. In roughly the second half, we then talk about Glenn's views on effective altruism and long-termism. Uh, he said some critical things in the past about them, and I think that a few of his comments there have been novel and potentially very constructive, so we asked Glenn to elaborate on them. Some of the things he said to it resonated with me more than others, but I think Glenn articulated just a very smart, skeptical perspective that was really useful to hear. And in general, I think it's just acutely important to hear critical outsider takes on any kind of ambitious or radical worldview that you're letting guide the things you work on. Just as a side note, I feel like at some point I gave the impression that I was absolutely confident that AI is somehow going to end the world as we know it this century, and I would like to clarify that I am at best agnostic on this question. Anyway, a big thank you to Glenn Weil for joining us, and without further ado, here's the episode. Hi, um, I'm Glenn Weil, and I am the founder of the Radical Exchange Foundation currently just a board member there. And I'm also at Microsoft, where I'm the Office of the Chief Technology Officer, Political Economist and Social Technologist, which uh, is a backronym for Octopest. Um, and uh, there I advise Microsoft on the intersection between geopolitics, macroeconomics, and our tech strategy. Fantastic. I thought the physicists had monopolized backronyms, but I'm glad to see the economists are getting on it. Political economists. Political economists. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's a good start. Um, so the structure of this conversation, I'd like to begin, or we'd like to begin, by going through some ideas in your book, Radical Markets. Um, it's been nearly three years since you wrote that, and I know that, or I expect that you've updated on some things there. Um, and then roughly in the second half, I think it would be interesting to talk about um, your takes on effective altruism and long-termism, and maybe also rationalism. So that's the, that's the context. Yeah, cool. So maybe one uh, good place to start before we delve into uh, like a bunch of the proposals and kind of solutions uh, that you suggested in the book is to maybe like take a step back and lay out like why we even need right like these kind of like radical solutions uh, like in the first place. So you spend um, like a lot of time talking about like market power and um, needing to spread out like gains from innovations. Um, can you maybe like talk about the fundamental problems that are kind of like underlying um, like the world that, that you're like looking to address uh, with the book and with the, the proposal? that you kind of suggest? Well, I think my perspective on that has somewhat changed. Um, I think, you know, in the book, I focused on a lot of very traditional economic framings of what the problems are, like inequality and growth and so forth. 
I think my perspective has come to be a little bit different. I, I think that fundamentally what motivates my work and, and those ideas uh, these days is the, is the concept that our technologies, our physical technologies have advanced much more than our forms of social organization have, and that um, that's not sustainable, that if our technologies advance too far ahead of our forms of social organization, our social organization will be incapable of governing those technologies and will end up being ruled by our technologies rather than the other way around. Um, and so the book and sort of the broader work that I do is very much dedicated to trying to allow us to have an imagination for the way that we organize ourselves that is as capacious as the way we imagine our technologies. Very few people think that, oh, you know, our current technologies are just like, have some slight failures in them, but if we correct those, then we'll have like the optimal technology. Like nobody thinks about technology that way. And I don't think we should think about social organization that way. We shouldn't think, oh, there are like these two forms of social organization or three that have ever existed. And now we just need to refine them a little bit. And then we'll be at the optimal form of social organization, which is often how we talk about politics, you know? And um, I think that's fundamentally what drives uh, the book. You said that you change your mind on this, right? I guess like from from before how you were thinking about this, like how did that come about? Um, like what caused you to, I guess, initially view this, right? In terms of like um, more standard, like economic concepts um, or, or kind of like um, uh, specific like problems and stuff to this like broader theme, um, like like what, yeah, caused you to change your mind? Well, well, I used to be an economist. Uh, you know, that's where I came from. That was my the foundation of my thinking. I was trained as an economist, but as I went around and started talking about the book and started, the ideas started getting applied. I started seeing the both potential of them, which was I think greater than I imagined. And at the same time, the limitations of them, I started seeing that it, the book was a first step into a field. It wasn't a, a end point. And that started making me, and also I started seeing the sort of flaws in many of the premises that were used to derive the ideas in the book. And all of those, those, that process made me see that there was this much more bigger problem um, and that the, uh, the challenges that it addresses are, are much more fundamental than just the rate of economic growth or, you know, the degree of some narrow measure of inequality, but rather sort of our ability to continue to live in this planet without, you know, destroying ourselves. Yeah, I guess I'd be curious to hear from you about why this situation then has like come about. Like, has it always been the case, right, that like our regulation or like our social organizations, as, as you said, like hasn't been able to, to keep pace with technology? And now technology is just moving at much more rapid speeds. Are there like other like fundamental trends or things that you think are like worth pointing out or like considering or like what, what is the, the story there? Well, I think I'd say two things. First of all, it's always been it's been for a long time the case. Uh, and for a long time, I really mean since the late 18th century, uh, that our technology has accelerated and our social institutions have not quite kept pace. That being said, we've had some really astonishing periods of advance in our social institutions to keep pace with our technologies. I think 
the labor union movement, the emergence of public utility regulation, the emergence of public funding for research, um, especially around the middle part of the 20th century, we saw a huge advance in our social technologies. Uh, and even before that, we saw the emergence of democracy uh, and nationalism and so forth. And I think those were very important advances to keep that parallelism going. But I think that our social imagination closed dramatically uh, around the middle part of the 20th century. And that relates to the Cold War and neoliberalism, and we could get into all, all these sorts of things. But I, I think that that period uh, really started to shut down that imagination. And especially at the end of the Cold War, there was this sense of the end of history. Uh, and that was, I think, a, a very wrong turn for us to take. And I think we're starting to recover from that uh, turn and to uh, open our social imaginations again. I'm curious to linger on this for a bit. It does seem true to me when you mention it that maybe from something like the 70s onwards, see much less innovation in something like modes of how we organize ourselves. Just in our last interview, we were talking about the great stagnation. It seems to be true of innovation elsewhere as well, like in culture and science and engineering. Do you think there's some common cause there or is there a kind of a, a special explanation for this apparent slowdown or more or less stalling in how we think creatively about how we relate to one another? I think that uh, I would attribute the slowdown on the scientific side or rather in the cultural and social implications of our scientific advances to this slowdown in our social organization. I think people mistake, I, I actually don't think the pace of fundamental science has, has necessarily slowed. I think the problem is that the ability of that fundamental science to mean things in the lives of people is driven, is fundamentally a socio-technical problem, not a tech, purely technical problem. And, and the view, like it was precisely when we decided, let's step back and let science just take its course, that, that science stopped doing much uh, for us. Because science doesn't take its course. It, it's a process of society digesting those scientific advances that really makes things possible. A great example of this is by um, a man called uh, uh, Donald Norman, I believe is his name. He's, a, he's one of the founders of the field of interaction design. And he said that um, video conferencing was invented in the 1880s. It was first prototyped in the 1920s. It was uh, commercialized first in the 1950s. And at the time of his writing, it hadn't even gained widespread adoption. It ended up doing that as a result of the pandemic, not as a result of any scientific advance, right? So it, it's fundamentally our social capacities that enable uh, advance in productivity and things like this, not our scientific capacities on their own. And I think one of the great mistakes we make is focusing on scientific advance rather than, so, than social advance that complements those scientific advances. Understood. Okay. Video conversing is an interesting example. Um, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the mother of all demos um, that Doug Engelbart gave in Xerox Park. The vision for video conferencing was more or less there then. 
And um, it does seem well, like we could have got there much before that, I guess. Right, right, okay. Fair even, even before that, I mean, Engelbart was just reprising, you know, the, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was convincingly shown at scale in the 60s. Um, yeah, Engelbart is a remarkable figure, and the, and the whole project that led up to that is a very important part of my uh, intellectual development, so... There is definitely a difference, right, between like just ideas or like just gains in the abstract accruing and then like them actually like being spread out or like becoming real world. And, you know, that that maybe like links both one on an implementation side and on the other hand, using side, right? I mean, it's possibly like a classic distinction between like um, invention and like innovation um, and that itself, right? Um is maybe like another part of the formula where like there's the coming up with just ideas like kind of in the abstract thing and like things that go into that and then there's a the thing of how that technology then interacts or like spreads out with society in addition right to like how society then in turn like affects the even coming up with ideas in the first place yeah yeah and furthermore it's the integration between those two things that allows it to be actually effective when they're when they're separate spheres they, it doesn't work well when they interact closely it works well. I mean, the most Im impactful technologies of the last 60 or 70 years was uh, came precisely out of the uh, Lick Lighter Engelbart project, which was set, which became the Internet and personal computing and so forth, which was set up from the start as a network of user experience uh, researchers, not as a fundamental detached abstract scientific enterprise, um, which is what made it so successful, I think. Yeah, I mean, earlier on, you just said that Engelbart, I suppose also Ligleider, were in some way important to your development. Um, I think it'd be silly not to return to that and ask more. Maybe one framing here is, okay, I have a kind of, you know, total like outsider's um, hot take about this period in history of the internet, which is maybe it's easy to over-aggrandize this, this period, and perhaps what's going on is uh, we just walked into this kind of room full of low-hanging fruit or whatever the metaphor is once we got, you know, the technology that's that's um, sufficient for something like networks, computers, personal computing. And maybe really kind of any project would have just hoovered up all these ideas sooner or later. And perhaps then it's it's a mistake to read too much into the particulars of of how this you know, project, for instance, at Xerox Park was organized. Do you think you could explain what I'm getting wrong there, if I'm getting something wrong? Yeah, so I, I would I would put that almost exactly the opposite way, which <laughs> is to say, I, so that that there is a attitude towards the social deployment and, and social technology uh, that is extremely common in technical communities, which views it as either completely impossible or um, totally inevitable. Um, whereas scientific advance is viewed as the product of hard work. Um, so the attitude is either, oh, well, once we have the science, you know, it'll just, it'll just diffuse. It'll just happen. Don't worry. No, no worries. Or, oh, you can never change political institutions. I mean, they're just, they're just fixed forever. You know, like, like societies are never going to adopt this. People are too like recalcitrant, you know, people are super concerned. Like that, that, that tends to be, that's the typical attitude that I encounter among people with an engineering mindset. They, and they sort of oscillate between those two things uh, from like often, you know, like sentence to sentence within a conversation, you know, but they're unable to accept the intermediate position, which is it requires concerted and thoughtful work to surmount the impediments 
to social innovation. Um, and I think that the fact that like those two positions are sort of equally held and and like oscillated between so so frequently, uh, I'm not going to be able to make a sustained case here for taking the intermediate position. But I, I think one should just reflect on the fact that the plausibility of those two things sort of from moment to moment being equally true might lead one to consider that the intermediate position might have some, you know, value to it. Um, so, uh, like, it, it's it's just remarkable how much you hear both of those positions expressed by people with the engineering mindset. Both are ways of avoiding serious engagement with social questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I thought it'd be good to dive into some particular ideas uh, from the book and that you've come with, up with since the book. One of us will try to actually explain them, you know, after we record this. So don't worry about doing that. But we do have some questions about them. Hello, Finn here. I am going to try to quickly explain quadratic voting, but you can skip ahead a minute or so if you're not interested. Okay, so imagine you have a bunch of people voting on some binary decision. Um, a standard way to do this is to give everyone one vote per decision. And then the option with the most votes wins, right? An issue here is that if 51% of these people very weakly prefer option A, and the remainder very strongly prefer option B, then option A will still win. So we might want a way for voters to express the strength of their preferences also. Now we can do this by instead giving everyone a pot of like vote credits, which they can allocate between different decisions. So if you have 100 credits, you might choose to spend, you know, 60 of them on some decision that's especially close to your heart and then sprinkle the rest across other decisions as they pop up. Quadratic voting is similar to this idea, but now the influence you buy on some decision scales with the square root of the credits that you spend on it. So I could buy one unit of influence with one credit, but nine credits would buy me three units of influence and so on, right? Okay, so why this change? Well, the intuition is that you want to avoid situations where someone dumps all their credits into one issue just because that issue matters to them a little bit more than any other. And that might happen if a unit of influence on that issue is always worth more than anywhere else, but an additional unit never gets more expensive for this person, right? And in this world, people will just dump all their credits only on the issues that matter most to them and nowhere else, right? And then decisions will end up being dominated or determined by whoever is most fanatical about them. And that's bad. So what you really want is for people to influence a decision exactly in proportion with how much it actually matters to them. And this means that the cost of an additional unit of influence over a decision should scale with how many units of influence you've already bought. And on this arrangement, you will spend credits on a decision up until the point where an extra unit of influence costs more than the benefit that you'd expect to get from it. Now, if you think about it, the cost of n units of influence here is going to scale with the square of n. Um, and what's cool is that on a simple model, you can show that this quadratic method is the only way to get people to vote exactly in proportion to how much an issue matters to them. Now, quadratic funding is basically this, but for deciding where to spend money rather than which decisions uh, should get made. So the idea is that there could be like 10 projects and you'll distribute your money between them in proportion to how much they matter to you. And then a larger pool of funds will match your donations in a similarly clever way, which allocates funds to each project in proportion, hopefully, to how much each one matters to everyone. 
I appreciate this was not as lucid an explanation as it could have been, so I would encourage you to check out an excellent summary that Vitalik Buterin wrote, which I'll link to in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. So maybe we could begin with quadratic voting and quadratic funding. I think one question here is something like, um, what's the route from here to a world where these mechanisms are widespread? In other words, what are the kind of small scale or keyhole implementations of quadratic voting and funding? Well, this is a perfect uh, exemplar of the conversation we were just having, which is to say that um, I think that a, a world where those are adopted is both possible and challenging to bring about. It is not either inevitable or uh, impossible. Uh, and I think the key to it is um, a, a very strong engagement with and attention to the dynamics of social and political change. And social and political change does not happen by brilliant abstract ideas being expressed in technocratic language to a small number of uh, you know, intellectuals. In fact, the that is one of the quickest ways for them to stagnate and disappear and not even be appreciated by the intellectuals. So like quadratic voting, for example, uh, was very hard to communicate even to economists, uh, even though it was simple and they got it. And it, you know, there's lots of economic logic behind it. But it was neither sort of a, a the the particular sort of challenging mathematical advance that people wanted to see within a particular area of, you know, the economics acad academy, uh, nor was it something that already existed in the world and therefore could be studied as an empirical phenomenon. It was instead like a new design. And, and that kind of a design uh, only really flourishes in communication with communities of praxis that can make something of it. And um, that is where quadratic voting has flourished. And I think it will actually come back to the scientific establishment as an empirical phenomenon uh, in the coming years. It's already starting to happen. Um, and like, what, what has made it do that? Well, it's been the interaction with social movements, the interaction with technologists, the interaction with artists and those who help shape our imagination of the future um, and it is through that diversity of pathways, I believe, that it is a chance of really making change in the world. It's because it's being used in computer games uh, that are being played by millions of people. It's because it is uh, making its way into the practices of the Taiwanese government and the Colorado state government. Uh, and because it's become sort of a meme within the Ethereum community or the broader blockchain, you know, Web3 ecosystem. And the convergence between all of those and the way that that then seeps into the media, all those things together are what are making it work. And, and you asked for the keyhole application, you know, what would really make it work? And the answer is uh, none of those applications I just listed, which have been so effective, are anticipated in the book. Um, they were all things that came by throwing things out there and having people make things of them, just as um, 
none of the major applications of the iPhone were anticipated in the initial Apple spec. Uh, and, you know, more, more broadly, I think that there is a imaginary within sort of academic and engineering discourse of what I would call experimentation on, where the engineer designs, here's what I think this could be used for, and let's go see if it works and whatever. But there's another attitude towards experimentation that I've come to be a strong believer in, which I would call experimentation with, which is that you can't know what the impact is. You can, you can, what you can hope to do is to communicate and to generate something that people can play with. Um, but that, that play and that return to the engineer is what makes innovation in the world really possible. Yeah, that's interesting. And it sounds to me that there are like maybe two things kind of going on here. One is maybe this idea of just people needing to be exposed to ideas before, um, you know, that they are like ready to kind of like accept or like use them. When I would like initially hear about quadratic voting, like my immediate thought, right, would kind of go to politics and general or like presidential elections kind of like running by this scheme. Um, but here, you know, um, such a big change or like such a big different method. Um, to to count votes and stuff seems a bit scary. Maybe I just need more gradual like exposure in order to accept the idea of beer through video games, online reviews, or or what kind of have you. But then I think you've also picked up on this second mechanism here, which is something more around like experimentation and refinement that kind of goes beyond right, like the first. Um, invention and is like maybe more of a deliberative process and seeing in what like circumstances, right? This is functioning and like adding value in, in what in what cases not. Is that like roughly right or am I like missing something here? Yeah, I mean like people within the EA community love RCTs, uh, randomized controlled trials, which is a classic experimentation on paradigm. But imagine trying to do an RCT with a virtual reality headset. Like what is it exactly that you would measure? Like who would you measure? Who would you give it to? And I mean, I'm not saying people haven't done things like this and they've been able to measure specific aspects of specific things, but, but most of what we've actually learned about virtual reality headsets has come from people like doing all kinds of crazy shit with them and like that couldn't have been anticipated by the designers. Coming up with applications that couldn't have been anticipated by the designers, that then leading the designers to do something completely different in the next generation of headsets that they make. And that sort of treating those who are the subjects of experimentation as peers, uh, as epistemic peers, as design peers, that I think is central to me to what it takes to make real fundamental social innovation work. And I'm a fan of RCTs for many things. I'm even a fan of that type of thinking for areas that many other people don't think of it. So like, I think in finance, we could use a lot more top-down evaluation of things and much more constriction of, of the innovative space, actually. But um, I think that uh, there are many areas where we have come, especially in things like economic policy or social design, where we've come to think that that should be the mode of, of thought and, and that just setting things up that way basically undermines the capacity for fundamental innovation in social institutions. Um, I was just going to say, like, I think that's also like one area that I think like I have definitely actively like changed my mind on or like I'm changing my mind on is in terms of like what we even mean when we talk about like democracy and stuff, where I think like at the beginning, I very much like viewed it as just like an aggregate like preference uh, kind of thing. And like, how do you do that? And like, how do you like make that 
like like fair and stuff. Um, whereas like here, I think like a lot of the emphasis, right, seems to be on what you're kind of describing here is like deliberation and that just act of like having um, participants and like having um, like feedback and um, just kind of, I guess, like co-creating in some ways as well seems to be like super important and kind of goes beyond, right, like what you mentioned at the beginning as well of just like economic like ideas and stuff and more um, kind of grounded like a political or like a social uh, like background too. Exactly. When I, when I evince a lot of enthusiasm for democracy, I think many people within an engineering mindset, or especially, you know, including the rationalist community, are like, oh, like majority vote isn't so great or whatever, you know? And like, that is profoundly not what I mean by democracy. Like, what I mean by democracy is an attitude of epistemic peership to a wide range of people. Like that, that is, that's like fundamentally what, what I'm, when I'm, when I'm celebrating, when I celebrate democracy. One area that you did talk uh, and, and write this like paper on um, where, where you can see um, QV being really useful is this idea of um, liberal radicalism and uh, in particular how, um, yeah, um, you could have like a design mechanism for philanthropic matching funds. N now labeled quadratic funding, just, uh, uh, just to keep things uh, clear. Yeah. <laughs> okay, to, to get the terminology straight. Yeah, well, could you like maybe lay out um, the, the case for this there? And um, I guess especially as well, echoing uh, Finn's question right at the start of uh, kind of like keyhole uh, like solutions and stuff here. Um, yeah, like what, what do you see as um, potential like applications or what's going on? So, so quadratic, quadratic funding is really in some sense just equivalent to quadratic voting, but it's formulated as a, uh, a mechanism for funding things. Uh, sort of against the backdrop of a capitalist economy rather than as a way of making decisions against the backdrop of a democratic system. Um, and in it, uh, rather than uh, making a vote, people fund some sort of an organization or an enterprise or a public good provision entity. And individual contributions are matched according to a sort of democratic principle, which is that small contributions are matched more than large ones and contributions to something where there's many uh, different contributors uh, receive more matching than contributions to things where there's a small number of individual contributors. And the basic concept there is to reverse the logic of the public goods problem where small contributors to large causes don't have an incentive to contribute as much as value as they receive because they, uh, you know, free ride effectively like other they they hope that those other value creators will will add you know contribute and that they don't have to they don't internalize the value that those folks add and one way you could overcome that is by matching the contributions so you'd like to sort of match according to a sort of Kantian principle where if I'm one one thousandth of the value you'd want to have one thousand for one match to my contribution so that I internalize that all and the question is, when people are diverse, is that possible? And, and this quadratic formula does that. It says that no matter how large or small you are, your match will be inversely proportional to your share of the total value. And so that leads to, that, that overcomes the problem of, of free riding. Yeah, and I guess we're now talking about like applications of this and especially like experimentation and uh, this kind of like co-creation or like deliberation in the real world. Can you like give some examples here? So one that kind of comes to mind is is Gitcoin and these like quadratic lands. But I'm wondering, yeah, if you could either go into more detail there or, or talk about some others. 
So, so Gitcoin is the application that's been most successful so far, which is the support of open source software. And, and the basic structure of a market that Gitcoin would try to make is that you need some entity which is sort of benevolent but uninformed. So like uh, some entity that has an interest in seeing some ecosystem behave well, uh, but doesn't really know what are goods that people in that ecosystem need. And then you need people in the ecosystem who want to support its success. Uh, and then you need projects that they can support. And um, open source software is a classic example of this. You've got people who are participating in the Ethereum ecosystem. You've got the people who own a lot of Ether or otherwise benefit from it prospering who are willing to provide those matching funds. And then you have um, projects that propose to create different forms of open source software or media that support the development of that ecosystem. So that's been quite successful. They funded, a, you know, I think tens of millions of dollars of funding has been channeled to open source software projects, both within the Ethereum ecosystem and to some extent outside of it uh, using Gitcoin. But that's obviously just one application. One quick question that's occurred to me here is, so the way um, you might be able to find funding within effective altruism, at least one of the ways, is that you can apply to a fund and that fund will be managed and decisions will be made by some board of, you know, hopefully well-informed, well-intentioned decision makers, right? Um, and they'll distribute the money. I wonder if you can uh, imagine some arrangement that looks more like Gitcoin in the context of effective altruism. Do you think that could work? Sure. Any community that uh, sort of is aware of its own lack of knowledge but has benevolent intentions for the development of some ecosystem would find a mechanism that elicits signals from that ecosystem of value uh, useful in directing its resources. Mm. Yeah, as I take it, it's a particular kind of lack of knowledge that this solves. One of you could elaborate on what kind of ignorance is, is the important kind here. The, the ignorance here would be what, what particular projects add value to some community of people that are that are collective and you want to hear from those people about what they what they know about that yeah got it so i guess the idea is the information's out there like people know what they want and the challenge is getting that information to like percolate into the right place or something you know a, a market economy you know under certain conditions should kind of do do that as well right you get demand signals and whatever but those conditions are quite limited and if there are in particular if there's increasing returns if there are things that create um, value for people that uh, increases the number of people who consume it grows, um, you know, or the costs of providing it are lower. With then, then markets won't do a you know standard capitalist markets won't do a particularly good job of providing that. Whereas uh, this type of mechanism will, and those examples are like you know anything that you would call quote exponential technology, anything you would call things that um, yeah, any anything that's really a technical advance or and advance that can be consumed by many people will, will have that property. Yeah, at the risk of like possibly um, getting like a bit too wonky here, can you like explain that mechanism of like why is it about like increasing returns and the like? That means that like markets uh, or like the uh, like like free market and stuff like wouldn't be able to uh, provide it in a way that this like quadratic funding system would. Well, so um, there's a fundamental. Uh, theorem in economics, which is the basis of all the claims that markets work well, 
called the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics. And what this says is that under certain conditions, markets lead to efficiency. And one of those conditions, one of the most important is what's called decreasing returns. This is the notion that all production processes have the property that the more that you put into it, the less it produces per unit. It's, this is also known as submodularity. Um, so that basically, th that's like the sum is great. The whole is greater than the sum of, is less than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Could you give a quick a quick example of a, a case where there are decreasing returns? Well, like a, a classic example would be if you have a factory. Eventually, if you put more and more people working at the factory, uh, they're going to crowd each other, and they're not going to be able to produce as much as the last person was able to. But if you, but but almost all the interesting cases that 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 are really transformative are increasing returns cases. You think of a city. Like if 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 we had decreasing returns, we wouldn't live in large agglomerations of people. We wouldn't have networks. We wouldn't, you know, like anything that really adds a lot of value has to be like that because otherwise you couldn't do it in, in at scale with large numbers of people. And in those cases, we know that capitalism can't lead to uh, efficiency. Why is that? Well, it, it's a little bit intricate mathematical logic, but the basic notion is that the idea under capitalism is you're supposed to pay people for their incremental contributions because that incents everyone to participate in the things that they add the most value to. But if you try to do that in an increasing returns context, you more than exhaust the total amount of funds available because the marginal returns summed over everyone are greater than the total amount created. And so it's just not possible to support things under that principle um, in, in a capitalist system. And if you allow people to take profits out of the system, it makes it even worse, right? So um, capitalism can't be consistent with efficiency in, in the cases that we're really interested in, these cases of exponential technologies. Okay, that makes sense to me, I think. But I wonder if it'd be useful, maybe this is too putting you in the spot, to think of some case study where just having some free market of some capitalist setup doesn't get you the efficient thing, but having some alternative like quadratic funding does get you the the efficient or optimal thing, just to kind of draw out that. Well, sure. Point. I mean, like my, my favorite example is media. So media is a classic increasing returns phenomena. Like once you create a, a piece of uh, content, it's more or less costless for everyone to enjoy it. And so the more people that enjoy it, the cheaper it is per person to deliver that service, right? Um, now, how do we try to fund media given this? You can do subscriptions that excludes people. Um, it also probably doesn't get you anywhere near the value that they're getting because they could just get that same information. Like most of the value of a new piece of media is not actually consuming the media itself, but consuming the information that came from it. And that information can be conveyed to you in a variety of ways. So you have very little incentive to pay to consume the, the piece of content itself, right? Um, on the other hand, like something that's just engrossing, but actually has very little value to it, you might spend a lot of time looking at like a cat video or whatever. Um, and so then you can put an advertising model on top of this thing, right? But then you're gonna send most of the funds to the least informative, most engrossing content, right? Um, so the capitalist model just doesn't track value almost at all. Whereas it, if people are saying, well, I want the things that are generating real value and I know what generates real value for me, I want those things to be created. 
uh, people may have a very good sense for where that real value is coming from. Now, they don't have much of an incentive to just tip and donate because they think someone else will do it and you know they're only getting a small fraction of value. But with sufficient matching funds, they, they would have the incentive to create that. Now, you could do it through the public. Like, you could just have the government support these things. And, like, of course, public radio is useful and whatever. But we think there are real problems of having, like, some nation state that has to get elected determine the information about its, you know, future existence. So we don't really want that to happen either. So neither of those models is particularly effective, whereas the matching model can be much more so. Yeah. So I had one more question here. And it's something like, how do we extend quadratic funding to future generations? That is people living in the future. Um, you know, I guess some central part of this idea is that you're getting information from living people who know what they want. And I'm curious whether we can come up with roughly similar mechanisms for, you know, provisioning these, these goods, which are also intergenerational goods, right? And the kind of challenge here is that many of the beneficiaries are just like not able to express their preferences because they're, they don't exist yet. Um, is this just hopeless or is there some kind of, um, you know, interesting starting point here? I, I don't, I haven't worked it out, but I, I don't think in principle it should be fundamentally challenging. We have mechanisms for sort of intergenerational transfer within the capitalist system, which are basically that I can borrow money, invest in something, and then make a profit in the future to pay that loan back, right? And uh, we should be able to do something similar with quadratic funding. And in fact, it should compound, which is to say, like, suppose that I, um, so, so right now quadratic funding happens at a st in a static way. It's like everyone at a moment in time contributes. But what if you actually, uh, decomposed it in such a way that if you get contributions from someone in the future and you got contributions from someone in the past, those should be sort of get that quadratic matching associated with them as well. So, so like, and, and I think that I haven't worked it out fully formally, but there should be a way that like, if you've gotten, you know, contributions in the past and then you get contributions in the future, sort of all the matching that was supposed to come sort of gets matched to those people in the future so that it it's like extra big in the future. You see what I mean? And that 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 incorporates both the matching that like the first person should have gotten and the matching that the person in the future should get. And you and I think you can do that sort of indefinitely. So that gives a way in which things that are very long lived actually get a huge amount of support because they're now getting and in fact you could imagine that in fact most matching funds might end up going to things that were like incepted in the past and then contributed to, to in the future because those ac accumulate the most individual contributors over time. You see what I mean? And, um, and in fact, if we go beyond quadratic funding to sort of the next versions of this that I'm thinking about, there's kind of an even stronger case for that, that sort of thing because the, the new versions that I'm thinking about actually index matching as a sort of a function of social distance rather than uh, just as a function of the number of people involved. And so that you might argue that like future generations are probably likely to be even more socially distant than people uh, you know, at the, at the present moment. So uh, yes, I think there becomes really interesting questions when you start 
taking an intergenerational or an intertemporal uh, perspective on quadratic funding. Yeah, I think what, one point just at the very beginning of, of, of what you said there that um, I think it's like maybe worth highlighting as well, which is that as exactly as you said, right, like um, there seem to be like intergenerational transfers happening all the time, right? And it makes me think of this like uh, uh, article written, I think, by Matt Levine describing, you know, lots of financial mechanisms as essentially working like time machines, right? And that they're able to allocate resources, uh, resources from uh, past to, to future and the like, but then making that um, equitable and, um, as you said, uh, a big part of like what quadratic voting seems to be is, is is kind of communicating with these signals and stuff um seems to be a really interesting problem um right that either like listeners or yourself and the like um should um yeah like maybe spend more time thinking on and like actually coming to, to grips with yeah no I, it's a very very interesting one of many design problems that i wish people would actually grapple with uh so that we could have advances in our social technologies like we have advances in our physical technologies um, a while ago, you mentioned when we were talking about um, quadratic voting that it had appeared in Civilization VI, this new video game. Um, I'm curious how that came about, first of all. I think it's a very plausible hypothesis that um, around the time that this expansion pack for it came out, which was about eight or nine months after the release of Radical Markets, that like the people who designed the expansion pack were swimming in the streams of conversations that sort of surrounded radical markets and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's quite plausible, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I can see some parallels between mechanism design and, and game design. So it's not fantastically surprising, but it is really great. Um, you said that there were some other radical exchange ideas in Civ Six. I actually didn't know that. So could you tell us what those ideas are? Well, I think the, the concepts around future governance uh, mm. that show up in, in the game are not necessarily derived directly from radical exchange ideas, but from the conversations that I think radical exchange helped stimulate and the, and the debates around it. So Yeah, okay, fantastic. So one broader question I had here is, how do you think about sending ideas like this mainstream, or at least giving them purchase, through creative media like um, video games? As far as I can tell, this is just an idea that's more or less been... Um, at least underrated by, for instance, the EA community? Well, I think if you want to have any chance at the sort of circular co-creation that we talked about, artistic imagination has to be key to it because there are many people who will not digest ideas in a purely linear, logical way. And in fact, many of the most creative people are precisely those who are least likely to digest them in that way. Um, so if you want to invite that process of co-creation, you have to do that. I mean, you think of someone like Steve Jobs, who was like critical to the birth of the computer industry. He never read an academic article. I mean, he had no interest in any of that, right? Like if, if the rationalist community had been around, he would have been about the last person to be consuming that kind of stuff. He, it was the homebrew computer kits that got sent out that made a difference to him, right? And it was the whole earth catalog and it was the, um, the hippie that, you know, like if you want this, if you, if you want to have a chance of attracting Steve Jobs of the future, you're not going to do it through sort of like highly intellectual and deductive, like academic work or blogs or something like that. Huh, I see. Last Civ 6 question. I saw a tweet recently from you and you said that this game, Civ 6, captures these are your words, what may be the defining political divide of the 21st century. And this is, as far as I understand, these are kind of different 
you know, camps you can select in the game. And the names are corporate libertarianism versus digital democracy versus synthetic technology. And I guess I just want to ask who and what in the real world do you associate with with those camps? And, and why does that demarcation work better for you than something more standard like communism versus democracy versus something else? Well, communism and democracy are the ideologies in the 20th century era of the game. But the question is what the 21st century era of the game will be. Uh, and, and our game in the world as well, right? So um, I associate corporate libertarianism with the cluster of ideas around Peter Thiel and the book, The Sovereign Individual, roughly the concept being that um, the internet is going to sort of liberate us from existing social institutions and allow for, you know, through cryptography and other things, individuals to sort of be in a kind of anarcho-capitalist state where uh, there is no longer redistribution or collective institutions. Everything is driven by these, you know, highly, quote, decentralized, uh, atomistically individual mechanisms. And um, even the traditional uh, violence, you know, uh, control of violence and suppression of violence will be performed by sort of mafias and things like this. So think of the book Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, like that world is kind of what they're imagining. Um, so that's, that's what I would associate with corporate libertarianism. Synthetic technocracy, I would associate with the notion of sort of fully automated luxury communism, the notion that like, you know, some AGI, some aligned AGI is going to sort of just produce abundance um, and then we'll distribute that in some way, maybe like a universal basic income or whatever. And then, um, you know, people will be free to just enjoy themselves. And all of the like hard stuff will be done by uh, some kind of computer assisted central planning. Uh, so that, that's a vision that I would associate with many people in the Chinese Communist Party. I'd also associate it with uh, Sam Altman's thinking, uh, many sort of AI maximalists. And I think many people within the rationalist community are attracted in that direction as well. Um, and then the third one I would associate with Audrey Tong and Radical Exchange and other people who imagine that what technology can offer us is new means of communication and uh, collective intelligence creation um, and you know richer forms of social organization and democracy and things like this. And that that's the sort of, that, that there's, a new form of democracy or pluralism that will be empowered by uh, the advance of digital technologies. Thank you. That was really interesting. It reminds me of, I think, Peter Thiel has this saying, crypto is libertarian, AI is communist. Exactly. And, so uh, he's got two of those two. things. And he's, right, he's trying to yeah. define away the third because the third is the biggest threat to him because both of those are deeply unappealing. And he hopes to use the sort of divide between those two to make people think that they have to adopt his if they don't want to be communist or whatever. And uh, the, the third poll, I think, is, is the one that most people would find most attractive. So, I think it might be good to switch over to talk now about various things you've said about effective altruism and rationalism and long-termism. 
some of those things you've said in this interview, but also elsewhere, you've made kind of critical noises about each of these more or less overlapping uh, communities. And I think a lot of what you have said um, is is going to be novel for some people and also can just be taken to be very constructive. So I think it's worth um, talking about that. And I guess, you know, a uh, uh, global first question is something like, what is your, you know, current assessment, um, 10,000 foot view of, of effective altruism to begin with? I mean, I think of these communities roughly the way I think of a religion, um, which is to say, like religion at its best offers a sense of community, a foundation for moral self-improvement, um, a, uh, a sort of answer to some uh, deep questions about purpose and meaning um, for it, the, its participants, uh, as well as on the darker side, potentially a source of... Um, uh, n narrowness in, in ability to confront other worldviews uh, when viewed in a totalizing way or aspiring to sort of supreme earthly power, um, potentially a very dangerous uh, direction. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of understand these things roughly the way that I understand a, a, a faith community. Um, and for, with all the, you know, pluses and minuses that that has. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe one follow-up is, do you see this as a common feature of all similar ideologically motivated communities in particular? Do you think the things you just said apply to radical exchange or is there an important difference? No, I, I think there's an important difference, which is that I think that, um, like the Black Lives Matter, I don't view as a religion. I don't view radical exchange as religion. Those are political movements. They, they, they do not aspire to be sort of like a pretty complete community of sort of moral uh, uh, solidarity for the members. They, they have a relatively contained set of socio-political goals that are usually fairly concretely stated. Um, they... Um, like when when you ask them like what do they stand for, there's usually a pretty uh, easy way to convey that, um, or at least uh, some slice on that, that um, is like you know reasonably actionable by the people that um, you know hear it. Uh, there, there's not sort of like a deep regress into like deeper and deeper sort of claims about fundamental. Uh, statements of who we are. You know what I mean? Like when I thought of EA and long-termism as sort of political social projects, which I did for a time, I was, um, I think, just much more like straight up just negative on them. But when I came to understand them in the context of sort of more of a spiritual project, uh, I sort of understood their place and sort of how they might be compatible with uh, other things that I... Uh, respect much more clearly I think okay um maybe one way of saying back what I've just heard there is one feature of um radical exchange for instance and many other political social movements is that they're fairly well circumscribed that is they have a more or less concrete more or less 
um, easy to state set of goals. Maybe by contrast, something like effective altruism is a little more totalizing in that the mission is something like, let's figure out the ways to do uh, the most good, all things considered, um, in some broadly impartial, welfareist sense. And it's hard to see where the wiggle room is is there, like what's what's left. And in particular, like the 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 like, you know, if you think of the classic, you know, um ontology, epistemology, you know, uh uh ethics, politics, like political movements really try to like focus on the politics and usually are extremely pluralistic about the rest of the stack, you know? And um like religions tend to like have a lot of focus on ontology, a fair bit on epistemology and a lot on ethics. You know what I mean? And I think that if you like try to think we're in the stack, is this playing? Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the fundamental commitments of people in the community are much more sort of ontological and epistemological and, and, and to a certain extent ethical uh, than they are uh, political or social or aesthetic or something like that, you know? And, and so as such, like I, 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 I view, I've come to understand them in, in those terms, you know? Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of like thinking out loud here, but I'm wondering like how much of this is like a question of uh, like certainty and like epistemics or, or something like that. Well, like maybe if it turns out, you know, that like the best way to do good is like very obviously um, donating to uh, AMF or like doing like some straightforward action to to reduce like X risk and stuff, then that, you know, um, kind of like stated goals or something like would like be like a lot easier like done and would, um, you know, then mean that like uh, EAs and like long terms or what have you kind of like go behind like, what you kind of described like maybe a bit more before of like one or two like clearly stated goals and these are the things um you know um they would focus on and and kind of like leave the rest um uh as like like kind of um up to its members itself or is it like just something like more fundamental where like if you are already asking the question of like how can you do the most good possible then um there will always be like um you know two goals that are like maybe like the most important but then you can always still do a third thing and a fourth thing and a fifth thing and then it becomes like um just very like totalizing is that like a maybe a fair description of, of what you're getting at well i mean look one one reaction to uncertainty is to say we have nothing to say go about your business another reaction to uncertainty is we don't have anything concrete to say but we do have some method or set of principles that is the right way to come to knowledge, you know? And um, I think that, you know, initially EA had a little bit more like, oh, here, here's what you should do, you know? And then people started really, well, maybe not, you know? Uh, and when they did, instead of saying, well, maybe this was like a misconceived project, um, like maybe we weren't thinking about what we were trying to achieve in the right way. They instead said, no, 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 we just need to go deeper down that stack. We need to like make our commitments at these epistemological and ontological levels, you know? And, and they said that that was uncertainty, but I, I think that that's not quite the right way to think about it because it, they, there are different ways of approaching uncertainty. Like there, there, there's a, a, a simply like um, socially humble way of, you know, confronting uncertainty. And then there's like a, a more 
religious way of confronting uncertainty, which is like, no, no, we, we think we have a way of understanding how to think. We think we have a way of understanding what, what, what are valid and invalid arguments and so forth. And, and we're going to stake our commitments there, you know? And, and I think that's the direction that the community has taken. And, and that is more of a religious direction um, for better or for worse. Yeah. I feel like I have a couple kind of disjointed questions. So this is just me thinking out loud again. Um, the analogy to religion is interesting to me and I'm not sure I'm fully buying in. Um, so maybe one disanalogy is that as far as I see them, organized religions centrally depend on some kind of faith that is a belief not founded on something like evidence or reasons for better or worse. From my perspective, I don't see what the article of faith is, or at least if there is one, it's not like some enormous leap. It just seems fairly sensible. It would be like, if the analogy held, it'd be like going to church and then, you know, the priest is sitting there like, we haven't quite figured out exactly which God to worship yet, but we're kind of running some experiments. We're kind of kind of trying to discuss with another what, what we should do. Um, and I would be more down for that kind of, that kind of um, religious experience than something else. Um, and then maybe another comment is that if... Well, first of all, there are plenty of religions like that. I mean, most right, syncretic right, right. religions are like that. Baha'i is like that. Unitarian Universalism is like that. Um, so, like, there are spiritual communities that are precisely as you describe. I've actually been a member of uh, several of them over time. Well, so the first thing to point out is that uh, the, the notion that, quote, there is no article of faith is, is, is a like red flashing signal <laughs> that um, a uh, one is like missing some basic things in like the history of philosophy, which says there always is an article of faith. Like, mm -hmm. like, like, like you, you, you have to, you have to have read, like if you've read Hume, if you've read, like if you read almost any epistemology, you know, that there's always an axiom hidden somewhere. Right? Sure, but when people say article of faith, they don't mean, you know, you're assuming you can get over the problem of induction or something. They mean something more substantive. I take it. Well, but, I, and, and I and I would claim that like when one goes into things like long termism, there's just the, the only way to proceed is I mean so once you start thinking about the long term future, things are driven by ratiocination on premises that are often very hard to disentangle, but are have to be very strong. I mean there's just like there's like no way to actually like, like, for example, like if you take Toby Ord's book, you know, uh, you get to the thing of like, why should we believe that like AI is this thing that's coming and, and, and whatever. And, and, and he says something like, well, experts in this field think that this is happening, which I'm not sure I actually agree with and whatever. But like, let, let's suppose that you, 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 you believe that. Well, like what, what's the basis then? Well, so you, then you think there's this set of people who have a particular pattern of reasoning that gives them access to transformative changes that are likely to occur in with at least some reasonable probability in like, and, and what is it that, that is the basis of this? Not well, so you start scratching a little bit lower and you realize, well, it's like assumptions about the nature of intelligence and the ways in which like computer, like all, is, is that just Hume's problem? Like, no, it's actually, there's a lot more that's going on there, right? And so, so they're, they're, they're actually, it turns out that like what it's actually founded on is a bunch of substantive claims about the nature of, of knowledge in, in various of these, you know, fields, um, which are like reasonably widely accepted among certain circles of people, you know what I mean? But are not actually 
at all widely accepted within the broader society and certainly don't have like the sort of scientific or evidentiary basis that um, like something like climate change or whatever has, you know, it, and, and so like, I just, I just don't, I don't think like how exactly one distinguishes those from the quote faith based claims of religions, I think is, is very slippery. And, and they have a lot of eschatological character to them as well. Like there, there's this notion of like, there's some, there's some event that, that may occur, which is sort of like of, of great importance, you know, and it's, it's somewhat speculative. It has been predicted repeatedly to occur by people in, in, in a similar space for some period of time. It has not occurred, you know, like there's just like a bunch of, of things that, that bear a lot of resemblance to like yeah, actual, yeah. like very concrete features of sure. religious practice, sure. you know? Well, speaking of the problem of induction, I would be wary to extrapolate from the fact that this thing hasn't happened yet, that it definitely can't happen or something. But um, no, of course, exactly. No, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Like, no, totally, totally. true of the second coming of Jesus as well. That's true. <laughs> there, there are many things. Oh, you laugh at the second coming. Like, I, I, I really, genuinely do not understand the basis that, on which people in this community will like laugh at the second coming of Jesus and think that these other things just are are like I. I like that is like if I object to something, that's what I object to. It's the dismissive attitude that they have to other ways of n knowing and making sense of things in in the face of the like that's 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 fundamentally the issue, you know. I see. Okay, thank you. Um, I would, I can try you know narrating my own um, experience. I take you as saying when you kind of follow the trail of assumptions um, down from this big kind of eschatological claim about general intelligence arriving, like the second coming of Christ, um, you find that it bottoms out in articles of faith in a way that's on par with, with things that everyone would call articles of faith. Um, in my experience, I find that it bottoms out in things which we definitely can't know about for sure, for obvious reasons, but which seem more or less reasonable to me. Um, you mentioned that some of these long-termist claims, for instance, claims about the influence of general artificial intelligence can't be grounded in any kind of scientific way um, that's equivalent to the way that we can ground um, uh, predictions about the effect of climate change on just like concrete observations of how the world is working. Like this is just hardcore science. And I, um, I think that's worth just totally conceding. I think that's just totally true. And it's like necessarily true. Like we're talking about a technology which is not yet arrived in the history of mankind. And so you're faced with a decision, right? I think um, it's clear that if something like this happened, it would be a very big deal. And so you've got to make this choice between something like giving up and just trying to make sensible guesses given what we have, have to work with. And maybe that's the, um, the difference there. Look, what we could say empirically, I think, is that there is a certain sort of a person um, who when they get exposed to the religious teachings of the Catholic Church reacts to those the way that you react to some of these claims about AI. And, and, and probably most such people will not react to the claims about AI the way that you react to them um, and vice versa. Like we, that, that's an empirical claim that I think I, I'd be willing to stake quite a bit on uh, being, being the case. Um, and um, like we could sociologically describe 
the sorts of people who are one way versus the other, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then we could say like, how, how, how can we, you know, like we could describe one as reasonable or not. I'm not sure that that's a very useful label to put on it. Like, I, I think the only, you know, purpose that that, that that sort of label puts on it is like to, to use a word that's highly normatively inflected in certain places to characterize one set of people and, you know, in contrast to the other, you know, like rationalistic, I think would be a reasonable phrase to put on it, you know? Well, I take it you, you do in fact believe that some lines of argument are more reasonable than others, right? I, I think that, um, certain, I, 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 I think that there are many different ways of knowing and that ways of knowing that manage to, uh, resonate with many of those different perspectives are those that are likely to be conducive to sort of social progress and greater coming to grips with uh, the problems that we face. I don't think that like talking about the, 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 like a primary criterion that I use to make sense of those is not like, this is just more reasonable than that. You know, like I, I think you can say that within the context of, of frames of reasoning. Um, and and making sense of the world. And you can say that certain methods of making sense of the world resonate with many of those frames. I think those are both completely reasonable statements to make uh, and that those are likely to be productive in various ways, you know? But I, I don't think that I would ascribe to certain, uh, you know, schools of thought sort of in, inherent fundamentally superiority uh in their in their ability to make sense of the world over over some of these other ways of, of thinking okay fantastic i'm reluctant to draw this out too much because there's a lot to talk about but i think what you've said there if we haven't we haven't reached a conclusion but i think it's nicely i think shown two modes of of, of thinking which you often kind of encounter when you're having these kind of discussions so i, I appreciate that did you have a question luca yeah i mean possibly at the risk of rambling on for a bit more i've got one uh, like kind of question that I'm maybe interested on this thread here. And this is like also like I want to step away from superiority or unreasonable uh, things here. But we, we drew a comparison here between AI and climate change. And like clearly, right, when you look at climate change science now, um, there is, you know, so much evidence, so much like literature here and stuff. But this is like itself, right, like a, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like a really kind of recent phenomenon and the actual discovery of of global warming or climate change, which hopefully at, at some point we'll, we'll do kind of a, a separate episode on, but like was a big task and measure that even in the 1950s or 1960s and stuff was like far from obvious when we really didn't understand things. My, and I know that very well because my grandfather in the 1980s was the pioneer of a theory of global cooling that at the time was sort of like almost on a par with global warming yeah, and then yeah. it turned out it could be, could be completely wrong so well and i i guess and this is as i said like i think big tangent and we're kind of planning uh for an entire episode about this exactly right but like i think the takeaway here is like it wasn't obvious in the 1950s right if it was global warming global cooling like what the mechanisms were whether like aerosol pollution was scaling quicker than uh co2 like kind of greenhouse effect and, and the rest but anyway this is kind of in details but i guess i'm wondering here if you are a scientist or if you are like a policymaker um in the 1950s and 60s where i 
arguably you have a lot more influence, right, over affecting climate change than, than people maybe today have, just because you are like much earlier on. And you are then faced, right, with very limited evidence. And, you know, there's still like an, an ongoing progress and stuff here. How does this question of faith or like reaching a kind of conclusion here of like whether you should take this thing seriously or whether you should just kind of take a bet on this, either because it is like very neglected now or it seems really important if true. Um, just like viewing on this case here then, what do you see as reasonable heuristics or like approaches? What should that policymaker or scientist take? I mean, I think, you know, if there are concrete ways that have shown progress, promise to get greater clarity on this and greater information on this, um, like that's desirable. I think if the only way to do that is sort of like string theory level sort of ratiination with like no empirical verification in sight, except at the cost of like enormous amounts of resource, I would tend to have a lot more skepticism about the like desirability of following that path. Like I think the string theory project has not been terribly illuminating. Um, uh, to take an example that's not the AI safety example, which was the natural one to give there, you know, but um, uh, so like, I think, you know, not something not that distant from what the scientific community actually followed was probably a pretty good course of action. And um, if, if there had been like really crisp evidence that, um, you know, you could prevent some probability of climate without causing some other probability of some other problem. Like there could have been a case for ma for making that to the public. I think it, it kind of would have been moot because they what would have actually needed to have been done is like worldwide fundamental change to the way that everyone lives. And there's sort of like almost no way that you could have or necessarily would have even wanted to have persuaded people to undertake that change um, absent much stronger evidence than was available at the time. So. Um, like, I'm not sure exactly what one would have done that would have been better. I mean, even with the overwhelming evidence we have now, it's proven very challenging and to some extent proven very challenging precisely because it, it's been approached in a manner that is very much like, here's the science, you guys are idiots, rather than like uh, a, a more sort of inclusive discourse about how to bring people around to that consensus. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think the way it approached was like that far off. And I don't think like sort of banging on it, you know, with low, less evidence would have led to a better outcome necessarily. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting. Thanks. I think I, we'd like to just touch on one more, um, point you've made about, I suppose, effective altruism and long-termism, um, which speaking personally, I think actually just resonates more with, with me. Um, I think this is a tweet or something or something you, you said in an interview. You said, uh, what would be most disappointing to me about long-termism and to a somewhat lesser extent EA and rationalism more broadly is how non-generative they have been. So I, want, I was wondering if, first of all, you could just explain what you, so, what you so meant let, let me Let me say one more thing on sort of just the, you know, just like the abstract critical side, which is I think one very important thing to understand about long-term thinking is... Um, what is like dangerous about it now like again i want to compare this to religion so like i also think that like planning lots of things based on the second coming of christ would be very dangerous like i don't think this is different from other religions you know like but but what what's dangerous about long-term thinking 
a problem with long with really long-term thinking when it's not extremely grounded in things that are like immediately perceptible is that um it's just like very easy for reasoning to go very badly in in a in, in a wrong direction if not grounded to fit like many different ways of verifying that reasoning that are not just rational deduction um like the you can quite quickly persuade yourself based on like chains of logical reasoning of a good deal of different things, many of which are in great tension with each other. And that's very easy to see, like, you know, just on the ground. But the thing is, it's also the case, you know, you might say, well, those things will quickly settle out and then there's some sort of consensus that comes out of that or whatever. But the problem is, I, I think that sort of reasoning is also likely especially within a relatively limited community, even once it's reached whatever consensus it reaches, to still be vulnerable to that sort of problem and disruption and so forth. It's just, it's just a very fragile thing. And like, I, I often use the analogy to L'Hopital's rule here. Like, when you look very, very, very distantly, you can have a lot of very large effects. L'Hopital's rule says that when you have zero over zero, the right way to figure it out is actually to look at the trajectory rather than to look at the levels, right? And, and the problem is there's just a lot of different things to potentially be said. And, and, and it's just very confusing. And like trying to draw any concrete conclusion from that sort of thing, if it's not supported by a bunch of other types of reasoning that are much more concrete and grounded, like the number of times I've made enormous mistakes in mathematics, if I just try to treat it as pure mathematics and I don't ground it in some historical fact or some data, you know, it's just really easy to do that, you know? And, and so I, I think that's a very, um, it's a, reasoning about things that are very distant is very fragile. I'll just comment very briefly on that. Um, I feel like I want to say that um, uh, if you are saying it's close to impossible to predict how the world turns out beyond even fairly short time frames, and let alone to think about how to influence that future in some way that involves a long chain of reasoning, then I fully agree. And I also don't think that's what, that is what long-termism is about. As I understand it, it's not about projects which take a very long time and require this kind of predictive capacity. If an asteroid collides with Earth tomorrow, then I think I can confidently say that in a thousand years' time, um, there still won't be any humans walking around. And I don't think that involves a long chain of reasoning. And I think it's clear then, um, insofar as this is likely, that maybe we should do something to prevent that or something. So there are cases where it's not it's not a kind of complicated chain of reasoning. Yeah, I think that that's, that's fair. I also think that in most of those cases, you don't... Like what you open the door to with long-termism, I think is much versus what could be reached by other means of persuading people is, is much uh, more inclined towards the things that I worry about. Um, like like per, persuading people that, uh, you know, an asteroid could wipe us all out and that that's a really bad thing is not a particularly difficult thing to do. Um, you know, like whatever, like we've been investing in it to some extent and whatever the, the, it's when things get fragile that I get worried and it's when things get fragile that I think it's really hard to use any other means to reach it. So when long-termism overlaps with lots of other things, I think it's a nice contributor. And that's how I feel about religions as well. Like I think religions add a lot. And when lots of religions can agree on something, um, that's like a really good basis for it being a, a moral consensus, you know, in the world. Um, on the other hand, when like, when there's one religion 
that like says something very specific and strong, I, I would tend to be very concerned that like that's not a sound basis for a society making a decision, you know, at a broad level. So, yeah, and I guess like one thing that um, like this makes me think of and like definitely resonates here as well is like when you like start looking right at like what actual like real world implications or like interventions that this suggests as well. Where like if you are like super uncertain and like so uncertain as well that you don't know if you know your your total effect ends up being like positive or like negative, right? So like to take um, maybe like Finn's like asteroid analogy, if we're then thinking about like uh, an intervention that we're not even sure about will make it more likely or less likely that the asteroid like comes towards us, but um, we know that the like magnitude is like very large or like the the outcome. Um, of, of this like in our calculation are very large I think that is definitely like one where I agree if you're just like grounded in like Excel or like in maths or like what kind of have you uh, and they're like like bowtacking uh, it can be like very fragile uh, as you said and I think that um, yeah definitely bites and, and like res resonates with me here and and so coming back to the question of generativity I didn't mean this to be a complete detour <laughs> um, I, I think one reason why many of these things have not been terribly generative and that the few things that they have generated, I have like pretty deep skepticism of. Um, like the one thing that some of my friends point to as like something concrete that's been generated by this is like this notion of um, like if an AI ends up uh, generating more than 1% of global GDP that all that money should be donated to whatever or something like that. That, that that's, that's, that's like something that people point to as like really good outcome. I'm like, Profound. I, like, I, I don't think that that is a meaningful or thoughtful or desirable or good direction for us to think about alleviating these problems. And I actually think it's like a huge distraction, politically demobilized. Like, I think it just sucks. Like, I, I'm not a fan of that. And um, like, I, I think that the reason why it has en like ended up on that trajectory is that there's like putting your focus on that long term stuff exclusively rather than saying, okay, well, yeah, that gives me some general set of things. Like I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I should have a real concern about stuff that might be like massively disruptive at global scale. And maybe I should like really think about that sort of thing. And then let me turn to like, yeah, let me just ground myself really in history, politics, and the concrete lives of people on what people think are crises. And then like, you know, just keep my eye out for things that might have that kind of disruptive scale. Like, I think that's a much better attitude to take rather than to view yourself primarily as a long-termist. Like I would say that's the attitude that I try to take within radical change. Like the reason why I care about systems of democracy, of social innovation, like I think that if we don't sort those out, I think that's upstream of most potential global crises. Um, and, uh, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger has argued this, but by the way, you don't need to believe in global crises to care about that stuff. You can care about it for lots of other reasons as well. I think the concern about generativity is relevant to the extent that you view long-termism and so forth as socio-political, social-technological movements. You know, Christianity generated art and, you know, and it generated people who had certain attitudes, but didn't generate like political ideas particularly, you know, and, and we, we shouldn't look to it to do so. You know what I mean? Like that's not the role of a religion. The role of a religion is to, you know, generate people who have certain types of attitudes, you know, and to generate various forms of solidarity. And I think that that's what we should look to long-termism is if we think of it in that terms. If you think of it as this sort of political, so you know, then, then you should be really concerned that it's not generating meaningful 
paths of action. I, I don't consider like we should put more money into long-termism thinking and we should put more money into like a AI safety research as like meaningful contributions that one makes. Like all that, that's, that's completely self-referential. It's saying like, you know, like, oh, what we're doing is really important. Give us more money to do it. Um, you know, usually like the way that startups work, the way that like, it's not like I started Radical Exchange by being like, well, people should think about social technology problems. Give me some money to do it. You know, like, like I, I started it with an idea of something concrete that people could do. You know what I mean? And, and, and like that generated value for external communities, hopefully, or hopefully will. And as it manages to, I think there may be a chance that people will be willing to support further development in those directions. And, and like, you know, that's how a sort of technological or social technological project, you know, mm, works mm. or should work, I think. Okay. That sounds reasonable to me. I, I can imagine some people wanting to say something like, take biosecurity. Obviously seems to matter. But if we wait until the next pandemic to demonstrate the value that we've created by various biosecurity measures, then we've waited too long. And so in some sense, we're forced to do things before we can demonstrate the concrete value in really clear terms. Does that make well, sense? Well, I mean, so that so that that may be true for some of these things, but like it's even paths of action. Like what are the paths of action that ha have actually come out of this? Like, I mean, I, biosecurity, we could talk about that. I'm actually, you know, I think those are important things that, that, that we should be doing. I'm not sure, like the countries that actually did that most effectively were countries with better social infrastructure in general. Like Taiwan did that really well. And that was not, I don't think because like, you know, EA people were in there like doing a bunch of stuff about biosecurity. I think it's because like they had a high functioning society with good social infrastructure. And so they took care of a number of challenges, you know, really well. Uh, but, but we could argue about that, but like, uh, like AI safety, for example, like what is it, what it, like, what's the great insight that people have come up with by like talking about AI safety, you know, like, I, like the, the things that people have pointed to me are this, you know, 1% thing. And we could talk about that and whether that makes any sense or not. Um, but yeah. you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that. In fact, if you want, but like I, <laughs> I, I don't view that as like an example of like something great that that like came out of this line of research for all the money that's been put into it. You know, and I, I guess to be clear, if I'm like understanding you right as well, like this would be still right perfectly compatible with like a consequentialist like worldview or something. Where now this is just a question of like, well, how do we generate like ideas that can reduce like bio risk or like AI risk here? And this seems to be like more an idea of like, well, where do you start? And maybe just like having a system or like a community like in place that starts or like has like more like a generative culture or like incentives or like what kind of have you or, like an ideology underlying that, that then is like more generative, like would be better, right? Like under even like from a consequential yeah, to, yeah, to absolutely. Get like I, I, I think I don't think you need to depart at the level of you know meta ethics or something like that in order to like see what is limiting about this you know sort of thing. Um, I think you can depart at the level of meta ethics, and maybe it's even useful to do that because I actually think that like communities that are grounded in other types of practices than consequentialism might actually be consequentialist more generative. <laughs> But but um, but but I don't think you have to. I think you can justify it in in, in consequentialist terms mm. as well. I wonder if one way of translating what you're saying into consequentialist EA language is something like the point you mentioned about Taiwan and this thought that maybe social technology or how we organize ourselves is 
in some sense, upstream of the particular concrete ideas. And if we want to be more generative, then we should think at that level. Maybe some people will hear that and think, okay, well, here's the new, or here's a new EA cause area. Or perhaps we've been underrating um, thinking about this 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 level. Um, and for instance, following Taiwan's lead. I suggest we close off that rabbit hole, though. And um, I think we should begin... Sure. And by, by the way, just to be clear, like, yeah, yeah, go for it. I, I, I like, I hope Radical Exchange and all the things, you know, that, that it supports around it will be like funded by people within the EA space. Like, I don't, I don't think that their money is so dirty that I like, I don't want to take it or whatever. Like, I hope we'll <laughs> okay. be funded by Catholics and I hope we'll be funded by Jews and I hope we'll be funded by effective altruists and, and I hope we'll be funded by Unitarians and all, all those things. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I am, I believe in pluralism, you know what I mean? Like, I, I do think it's a political project, not a meta-ethical project, you know what I mean? And uh, I think there's good consequentialist grounds for, for doing, you know, that sort of work. And and I make the case for it uh, often, and, and uh, I, I welcome the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither of us are ambassadors for EA or anything like that, yeah. but yeah. almost certainly the reverse is true, right? Like, clearly EA should be welcoming insights from radical exchange or from anywhere else and this um should look like a like a two-way exchange like a conversation more than walled cities doing their own thing competing for how to improve the world or something that's just a kind of ridiculous vision um in my view and i think lucas too i think you are unusually good um at finding and building on and explaining ideas from figures from history like economists or writers or whatever who um for whatever reason have just been buried in history and go kind of overlooked by other people perhaps you could just describe some kind of insight or idea that you value from these people sure i'd love to fantastic um yeah the first person was someone we mentioned earlier which is um jcr licklider what have you learned uh, from him um so JCR Licklider was the uh, um, ARPANET, ARPA program officer who founded the ARPANET, who funded the first five computer science departments um, in the world and who, uh, you know, helped uh, really stimulate, he funded Engelbart, really made the personal computer revolution possible. And I think there's a few things I learned from him. One is that there is a long tradition of, um, sort of human interaction, computers as a communication device, that this is actually like the the most fundamental tradition, like despite the whole AI narrative and whatever, the like foundations of most of the technologies that we have today actually come out of this tradition of thinking about computers as a way of facilitating human exchange. Um, and that, that was really interesting. The second thing I learned from him is that the internet, um, the project of building the, the internet was really seen as a much more ambitious one than what it became. That it, there were much more substantive protocols around identity and data sharing and so forth that were always sort of part of the imagination of where this would go and that the funding just ended up not being there. And that a lot of the stuff that we're now talking about in the context of Web3 and whatever is, I think, a result or, or a predictable result of not having developed the elements uh, that we uh, wanted. So, Fantastic. Uh, 
next one kind of rattling on would be Henry George. So Henry George um, was the best-selling author in the English language other than the Bible for like 30 years or something like that. He was the, his book gave the name to the progressive movement uh, in the United States and to the social gospel. He was, um, he inspired the game Monopoly. He was the first real center-left candidate uh, in the United States in sort of a modern center-left sense. Um, and yet, again, he's almost totally forgotten. Uh, and I think what I've taken from George more than anything is the spirit of the connection between economic ideas and real public engagement, the capacity to speak in the language of theology and the language of um, popular mobilization and the language of economics all in one breath, and uh, the idea of sort of connecting the sort of libertarian instinct with the socialist instinct. Yeah, and I, I maybe don't want to like uh, like read uh, like too much into this as well, but like it's maybe like an interesting uh, like echo of our previous conversation with like Henry George and Monopoly and uh, our previous kind of discussion around like Civ Six and um, you know creative media to like distribute uh, like ideas and stuff too. But no, I'll <laughs> leave it that. Um, last one is Beatrice Webb. Beatrice Webb was the uh, founder of the London School of Economics uh, and the Fabian Society, and um, one of the first people to theorize the role of labor unions in controlling monopoly power over labor, um, and I think sort of laid the foundations for thinking about how labor unions help make the economy uh, work better, and again, someone who worked at many different levels, from the cultural level to the organizational level to the political level, to, uh, as, a, as sort of an integrated approach to advancing ideas. Fantastic. And we'll put books and links in uh, the page. Um, let's move on to the very last questions then. Luca, I think you had the first one. Uh, yeah, and this is a, a question we kind of ask all our guests, but what are three books, articles, films, or other bits of uh, creative media that you would recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we've talked about? Read um, uh, the how Taiwan's unlikely um, digital minister hacked the pandemic in Wired. That's a profile of Audrey Tong. Um, I've got a piece coming out shortly called Why I'm a Pluralist, which is about the direction that I want to take radical exchange ideas soon. Um, and um, probably Vitalik Buterin's uh, essay, Quadratic Payments, which is a review of how quadratic stuff works. Last proper question is, uh, are there areas or specific uh, questions that you'd really like to see more good work on? And I have in mind that people listening might want to um, be doing this. Well, uh, the why I'm a pluralist will spell out a whole direction of thinking uh, about like what comes beyond some quadratic type thing. Um, there's also the, um, the questions that we talked about, the intergenerational questions uh, with quadratic funding that are really interesting. But other ones include how do you um, think about cultural capital um, and meaning making in similar terms to how like the uh, we thought about monopoly power over 
uh, property in the book? Like, how do you think about who, 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 like what people um, are understood to mean and what different, you know, styles of uh, communication, uh, what, who they privilege, who they give power, all those sorts of things, but in terms that allows actually mechanisms to improve on them and to adjust those balances of power. That would be, that's something I'm really excited about. Fantastic. And then simple question just to conclude, uh, where can people find you and what you're working on online? Uh, glenwild.com, radicalexchange.org, that's radical lowercase xchange.org, and uh, Glenwild on Twitter. Glenwild, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Glenwild on radical markets, quadratic voting, and criticizing effective altruism. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Glenn. That's Glenn with one N. There you'll find links to all the books and resources that Glenn mentioned, along with a full transcript of the conversation. If you get something out of this podcast, the best gift you can give us is to leave a review or a comment wherever you're listening to this, Apple Podcasts or whatever. Reviews make such a difference. They mean we know what kinds of things people appreciate about the podcast, and also it helps it become more visible for new listeners. Also, if you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a star rating form at the top and bottom of the write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. Thanks very much for listening.